Hi, my name is Sam Blezard. Welcome to Comms from the Shed. The interview show where you get to hear from a range of diverse and interesting voices on how they've coped during the global pandemic. In this series, we'll be taking an informal look at life, talking to people who've been doing incredible things and asking them about their hopes for the future in both their personal and professional lives. Hope you enjoy it. Dr. Susie Mitchell is the Programme Director for Glasgow City of Science and Innovation. After completing her studies in the late 90s at St Andrews and the University of Glasgow, she emerged with a BA and PhD from Molecular Biology and Oncology and Cancer Biology, respectively. Since then, she has worked in the NHS as a Research and Development Manager, worked for Glasgow City Council on Health and Improvement Programmes, and also for the Scottish Government. She's been a presenter and contributor at the BBC, appearing on BBC Radio 4 with Nicola Sturgeon on Women's Hour. She's also passionate about music and the arts, having been a session vocalist for various artists, including Lewis Capaldi, amongst others. She performed at the closing ceremony of the Glasgow Commonwealth Games in 2014 and recently joined the board of the Glasgow International Jazz Festival. She became a mum for the first time in the last few months. And so, Susie, welcome to Comms from the Shed. It's fair to say you've packed a lot in in a relatively short space of time. Was it always your intention to have such a varied career with varied interests? I guess in terms of my science background... My dad is, I guess, a sort of renowned green scientist and my mum is an educational psychologist. Parents and other sort of key role models influence your your values and your life choices. So that's probably why, I guess, to a certain extent, I was kind of interested in, in science at school. I'm sure there was a sort of environmental biosmosis kind of element to it. And I ended up studying biology and psychology as an undergrad and, as you said, cancer research as a postgrad at the Beatson Institute in Glasgow. So I was quite firmly science in, in the early days. I think you have to sort of make a decision at the end of a PhD, am I going to continue down the science route or actually try and use those skills in other roles? I've always had the philosophy that as long as you're learning and enjoying what you're doing and you're stimulated, then I'll stay in a role. And then when I get to the point where I think, right, I've done it and I need to move on now and be stimulated in other ways, I need a new challenge because that's been my general philosophy I have kind of had quite a varied career path kind of as you you described you know everything from a clinical trials manager in the in the NHS to working for the the Commonwealth Games in Glasgow sort of within sport doing kind of accessibility management so maybe a a common thread to everything that I've done there's probably three key things which is probably innovation equality and governance and what would you say you've learned about yourself in the last sort of 12 to 18 months? Because we've had the pandemic to deal with and you've also become a mum as well. So, I mean, how has all this affected your outlook on life and your outlook on your career? Unlike maybe many of your previous guests that you've had on, I've spent the last year, last year on maternity leave. Um, and I think, I don't know, I think having a baby to concentrate on was a good, really good thing during, I guess one of the most unprecedented of years. And I think despite the difficult restrictions that we had on seeing family and friends, which was difficult, Robbie, my partner and I made the most of the precious time that we had with our baby, you know, that, and we, we might not have had that actually in uh, normal times. We had 
no places to rush off to. We just had more time to bond and ensure that the baby was, you know, developing well and happy whilst we were getting used to being a family of three or four, including the cat. It also taught me after 24 years, roughly, of working, that actually a break from work and a refocus for a while is a, is a really good thing. It's a really healthy thing. I'm still career-minded. Um, I've gone down to four days a week now. I have to sort of change probably my working patterns a little bit. I'm a bit of a night owl, generally, when it comes to work. Um, so, yeah, I've had to adapt in those ways, but uh, those ways. But I'm certainly not, I don't feel any differently about work. I still need to work. I still need that challenge, I guess. You know, in your current role as Programme Director for Glasgow City of Science and Innovation, can you summarise the work you do in that role and what you're looking to achieve? Glasgow City of Science and Innovation is a partnership based in Glasgow. We are hosted by the wonderful Glasgow Science Centre. We exist to support greater innovation in the region. What we do, I guess, is to we connect people, we support um, collaboration within between sectors We encourage more businesses to adopt technology that can help them thrive and survive um, as a business. And I guess to use innovation, science and technology to help solve challenges um, on the ground in in that respect. We do that through a range of different programmes. And I guess one of the major programmes that we have is that um, we're currently the custodians of the National Innovation Summit for Scotland uh, the Can Do Innovation Summit and uh, various programmes that surround that summit. So it's an annual summit. And that summit particularly, we've got a, a strap line, which is Culture Tech Connect. So it's all about promoting greater innovation within our SME sector. I guess small to medium-sized enterprises form the backbone um, of our economy in Scotland and, and the UK kind of as a whole. And now we've kind of gone virtual because of COVID. Actually, that's been really interesting because we've been able to attract, I guess, um, innovators from around the world and not just Glasgow and Scotland. You mentioned other sectors. What do you think other industry sectors can learn from the science and innovation community as we emerge from lockdown? What we've kind of seen, you know, the the, the, the coalescing, the, the collaboration, I was talking about collaboration there, you know, that the global science community has sort of demonstrated has been quite phenomenal. And that focus on a single aim of trying to kind of solve a, a major global challenge, um, but as a kind of global community, I suppose. And I guess what the scientific community really demonstrated was agility and resilience. And I think companies have to become more agile and resilient now and in the longer term. They have to challenge their assumptions. They have to focus on innovating everything from their workforce cultures and their products to how they access finance and and how they adapt business models to thrive and survive and grow. And I think, you know, all organisations, in fact, all places, you know, we've been talking about sort of place-based innovation within our region, but this applies to organisations as well. They need a common purpose, They need a North Star, if you like, that helps to engage and motivate employees. Um, And it also helps us to sort of prioritise, doesn't it, sort of competing demands. And I think empowering sort of workplace cultures and networks and, as I say, collaborations, as well as adopting, and I think importantly, the right tech, you know, 
has to be at center stage of any sort of business kind of resilience uh, plan. But I guess organizations, what COVID has kind of really highlighted and exacerbated is that that organizations have to really be prepared so that when the next crisis or global shock hits, they can act fast and that they can have even greater resilience to absorb and adapt to the challenges. For those who don't know you, your dad is Sir Jeff Palmer OBE. And for our listeners, I'm just going to share some of his career history. Sir Jeff Palmer arrived in London as an immigrant from Jamaica in 1955 to rejoin his mother who left Jamaica in 1948. And after leaving school in London, he worked and attended evening classes to improve his qualifications and subsequently entered Leicester, Edinburgh and Harriet Watt Universities, where he gained a BSc, PhD and DSc degrees respectively. So Jeff is a board member of various organisations and has published books on different subjects, everything from science to equality, and has received various research, academic and community awards. He's an honorary freeman of Midlothian in Scotland, uh, having gained an OBE in 2003. He was also knighted in 2014 for his contributions to science, charity and human rights. He maintains charitable links with Jamaica and is also Scotland's first black professor, having been part of the Windrush campaign. He's an advisor to the honour system in Scotland, is chair of the Edinburgh Mela, and is a history advisor to Glasgow University, which is the first institution in the UK to state that because it's benefited significantly from Caribbean slavery, it will provide educational assistance to Caribbean students. The Scottish Government has also prevented Sir Geoff Palmer as its champion of diversity and inclusion, and he's regarded by many in Scotland and globally as a brewing legend, having trained the likes of Innes and Gunn and Brewdog Brewers, and was recently appointed as Chancellor of Harriet Watt University, where he taught grain science for over 30 years. So that is quite an incredible CV uh, for your dad. And you mentioned your mum and dad earlier as influences on you. I mean... With the passing of time, I, I know it's very different when you're a young person. You know, your mum and dad are, you know, being a parent myself now, you view your mum and dad through different lenses at different times, a loving lens, a rebellious lens. But what what's your feeling about how much of an influence your dad has been now on your life? Yeah, I mean, clearly, uh, dad has been a massive inspiration, um, not only to me and our family, but also sort of many people sort of across the world. And I guess there are certain attributes of dads that I think have probably rubbed off on me a bit. Um, you know, he's he's driven, you know, he's in his 80s now. He's, he's driven, if not more than he was 20 years ago. He has a, a strong work ethic. He is opinionated, but he is very measured. And he, like any good scientist, bases his opinions on evidence. He's constantly learning. He's very uh, honest and he'll fight for what he believes in. But also, I guess, and this is critical, I think, in terms of what he taught me, was that it's the importance of what he calls systems consciousness. So essentially you need to make sure that you're part of the system if you want to to change it. Um, and yeah, he's also 
a massive music fan. <laughs> so that was definitely an influence on me. There was often a lot of uh, jazz and reggae and soul playing in the house. That massively influenced my uh, uh, love of music. So, um, yeah, I mean, he's, he's, he's a hard act to follow. <laughs> but I would say that quite a few of those attributes um, to some level have kind of rubbed rubbed off on me. I'm often asked about my dad for sort of obvious reasons, but I would I would also say, you mentioned my mum, that that she's also a, a massive, you know, inspiration. I mentioned she was an educational psychologist. She transformed many families and children's lives. She was a working mother and at the same time a, a sort of amateur sort of theatre actress and director she also taught me my gardening and gravy making skills and, and provided, I guess, the support that, that um, seriously underpinned my, <laughs> my dad's huge success as a, as a world-class scientist and a human rights activist. So, you know, she was a really, and, and it continues to be a really important support for him. I mean, given all that your parents have sort of achieved and the things that they passed on to you, was there, was there a point in your life did you feel under pressure to sort of emulate anything like those achievements? I mean, obviously you've gone on to do a lot of great things yourself, but do you remember a point at which you felt pressure or was it something that was just always motivational for you? And was that not an issue? No, I didn't actually. I, d- I didn't, I didn't feel pressure. They never pressured my sister or I to, to be or to do sort of a particular thing. I think it was more about the values that I mentioned I think it was more about, you know, if you're doing a job, I think I think I've always sort of had that. And whether it's environmental or whether there's a bit of sort of genetics kind of involved, but I kind of think you should do, you know, you should enjoy that work and you should do the best job kind of that you can, you know, while while you're doing that job. But um so I think, yeah, I think the application of their values was more important than pressure to be a certain thing or to, you know, to follow a, a particular path. They've just kind of enabled, you know, both my sister and I to to do what we want to do, to be as happy as we can be in our work. But but we are hard workers. Maybe sometimes we have worked a bit too hard, <laughs> but but we are quite sort of motivated and conscientious, I suppose, in the work that we do. You talked there about being hardworking and, and motivated. Again, this is maybe a question I've sort of asked in reverse here, but in hindsight and looking back, what are your reflections growing up as a mixed race girl in a small sort of Scottish town? Was that added motivation for you? Or, you know, do you have any sort of particular sort of feelings about that now? It's funny, you know, because I've, sometimes sort of asked about this and I'm almost embarrassed I always feel like I should have a a motivational story (laughs) to tell about how I faced adversity um and got through it um but actually I never really like I knew where I came from and I knew dad's history and clearly it was a very white environment I suppose there weren't a lot of other black minority ethnic people or mixed race people I didn't particularly think about it actually and it didn't particularly affect in fact it didn't affect my childhood at all um but maybe that again comes down to my parents and being very secure 
quite confident in a way as a child. So I really don't think that being mixed race has held me back or disadvantaged me, not that I'm aware of. But yeah, I think again, I just I just didn't experience any any racism, particularly so growing up. I was I was lucky kind of in that respect in terms of the cohort of friends in the school so that I went to. Yeah, I think generally I was quite lucky. Don't get me wrong, there's always a couple of incidents that happen that you, I can kind of recount on, you know, one hand. I can kind of recount sort of stories that I look back and think, mm, okay, that was a bit of a, that potentially was a, a racist comment. But actually, in terms of my life course, not being affected by racism. Are you conscious that, uh, just a follow-up question, it wasn't actually on the list of questions, this, but just listening to you talk, do you think that, given what you've achieved in the sort of positions that you've held and that you now hold, that you might potentially be an inspiration to some people coming up through the system? It's very difficult to sort of have that opinion of yourself, <laughs> you know. Um, I guess, you know, I'm, I'm, I am often asked to do sort of career sort of presentations to, to girls and women, and I have done that sort of over the years, and I guess I've, I have moved roles sort of quite a lot. You know, how do you go from cancer scientist to, you know, working in a mega sporting event kind of thing? People are curious about that. And I guess for me, it's it's not like I, I sort of, you know, I knew how, you know, some people, they map out their careers, they know exactly what they want to do. And like, I didn't, you know, when they asked that question, what do you, where do you want to be in five years time? <laughs> I've never thought about that. I've always just thought about make sure that you're you're stimulated and challenged and happy and that you're doing something really interesting and that you work with interesting people who are passionate and stimulated as well. So and then and if you if you do start to kind of feel like you're treading water a bit, then then move on, you know, for the benefit of you and the organization you're working for. So I wouldn't say they're happy accidents, but I guess um, hopefully might inspire people to to not think that they necessarily have to stay in one job, you know, for a long time and maybe endure a job that they're not particularly stimulated by and that it's actually all right to move on. And actually, the more you move on, within reason, of course, um, the more skills you acquire, um, the more knowledge that you have and the more adaptable than you are to entering sort of different sectors. We talked about your dad's career history briefly there a few minutes ago. I think it's fair to say he came to prominence in recent years in quite a high-profile way because there's been a lot in the news on both sides of the political spectrum about revisionist history, cancel culture, you know, call it what you like, statues have been pulled down, and the way we look at our history is very different. And he's certainly been very vocal and he's inspired a lot of people. And I think what's impressive is that he's been prepared to engage the left and the right on this. My question was really about, do you think that's what's kind of missing in today's society, that we can't we can't have discussion, debate, dialogue with people that don't agree with our point of view in its simplest form? Yeah, I totally agree with that. And, and, and I think the reason why dad often gets asked, actually, <laughs> for commentary from both sides is, is his measured approach that I mentioned earlier. And actually, that's really important if you're trying to 
you know, convince the other side that what you're saying, um, you know, is valid. He's not, you know, strictly militant on kind of one side or another. And actually, I think, you know, being measured, using evidence, you know, rather than just opinion, actually, you know, he can back up his opinion. And that's really important. And it doesn't matter what you do in life. That's an important lesson. Absolutely. Well, he's de- he's definitely an important voice, I would say, in the media right now. We need more like him. Now, I'm going to move on to talk about side hustles and parallel careers for a moment. And to be quite honest, I don't know where to start with this one. I don't know where, you know, because anyone that knows you knows you love music and you've had a variety of rich and wonderful experiences. And we'll go on to talk about that. My first question was just to ask you, in terms of music, were you a self-taught musician or did, did you get sort of lessons in particular instruments when you were young? Yeah, so I had lessons. I had private lessons in piano from about the age of seven. And I'm smiling because some of those I didn't particularly enjoy that much. <laughs> um because I wanted to I wanted to play particular types of music that I guess my music teacher wasn't that happy about. However, that I kind of focused piano lessons, I guess, on sort of classical music. But actually, now I'm older, I realised that was really important in terms of, you know, becoming a, a, a better pianist and, and a better musician, probably. And then, yeah, I, I had lessons at school in guitar. So, and I carried that through from sort of primary school. I must have been about eight or nine when I started guitar all the way through to secondary school till I was about 16, 17. So, yeah, so I, I, and I, there was a couple of years there where I, where I had sort of drum lessons as well at school. I think with me, the interest in music was quite a personal thing. So I wasn't particularly interested in performing at all actually I performed to myself at home but I wasn't interested in being you know a performer as such I just I enjoyed learning music and playing music but not the performance aspect I touched on a few of your music related projects achievements in the intro um, and I know that you uh, as well as being a session vocalist and a backing vocalist on various things with various high-profile artists as well, I might add. You've also been in a collective called Million Dollar Disco and performed at the Commonwealth Games. I mean, what have been your personal sort of musical highlights? Yeah, I mean, the singing thing was really interesting because I didn't sing, you know. So when I came to Glasgow, it was an old friend of mine had, had come to work in the Beatson Institute for Cancer Research where I worked. And she said, you know, there's this gospel choir, you should go, it's great fun. They sing sort of gospel house music, you know, in clubs in Glasgow. And there's lots of really nice people that go along, you know, Ooh, that sounds quite cool. But I couldn't sing. <laughs> so actually, um, but I, guess, I guess I could sing. I just hadn't been trained and that was an amazing training ground. And then from that, I guess a chap called Mark Robb, who was, um, uh, who had a record label, Starla Records. He also used to run a club the Buff Club, original Buff Club in Glasgow, sort of said to me, listen, could you get a couple of other vocalists together to, to sing on Starla for a couple of artists that I've got? So so that's that's how it all kind of kicked off. 
So I, you know, I hold the gospel choir, you know, close to my heart in terms of, you know, it really kick-started my sort of parallel career as a session vocalist and, and sort of later in the, in the last sort of probably five, ten years as a, as, a, as a composer as well. So I don't know, in terms of kind of key gigs, I mean, definitely Million Dollar Orchestra, it's an amazing outfit of full jazz, funk, orchestral orchestral um, outfit with uh, four female vocalists singing sort of underground disco tunes of days gone by, huge harmonies. Um, it's the biggest party in town when it happens. It's absolutely amazing. And I love it. It's really hard to learn because that music, is there's so much to it. But it's just, it's incredible. It's an incredible feeling um, to do that gig. The, the first time we did that gig, I think, was back in 2005. So it was a DJ who runs a night called Million Dollar Disco Orchestra, and he wanted to recreate that within a, a band, you know, with full orchestra, brass, you know, horns, you name it. Yeah, I think we, we were supporting Dion Warwick that night, actually. It's quite a funny story, actually, which I'll tell you. So uh, we all came off stage buzzing, all excited, you know, post-gig buzz. Went into the kind of, I guess, green room sort of round the back. And there was this incredible rider sitting there. And we thought, oh, we've made it. So anyway, we sat there devouring said rider, only for a chap to walk in and say, what are you doing? You're eating Dion Warwick's rider. Dear. Anyway, it turned out Dion decided to go home after the gig and didn't want her rider, so uh, we were all right. But anyway, quite a funny story. I mean, the Commonwealth Games gig was like nothing... I'll ever experience again, you know. We had, you know, the eyes of four billion people watching us, I think. Um, probably the most nerve-wracking gig that I've ever done. But it was a lovely end, I guess, to my involvement in the organising committee for the Games. It was a hugely proud moment for Glasgow, you know, the culmination of all that hard work for years and years and years, you know, from 2008, roughly, to 2014, you know, so it was a big party for Glasgow that night. And once the nerves had gone, once we were at the mic stands, you know, we had a, a great time. And, and alongside me was Jane, who's my my singing other half, um, who we, we've done backing vocals together for years. And we're lucky that our, we found each other in the gospel choir and our voices blend quite well. So it was great to have her um, on stage with me. If you ever fancy writing your own sort of life story or your autobiography, I reckon a good title for it would be You're Eating Dion Warwick's Rider. <laughs> I think that could be a cracking title of a book. Just just in case you need inspiration or a bit of a left field suggestion. Just I'm just throwing that out there. And I, I love the idea of gospel house music as well. I think that there should be more of that in, in everybody's lives, uh, quite honestly. I actually, on episode one of Comes From The Shed, and just before I actually I share this, I think it's fair to say you grew up on the east coast of Scotland, but I know you're a naturalised Glaswegian now. I know you feel very uh, at home there, so I'm just going to share this just on, on the random. Maybe you might know what I'm talking about, but 
Drew McMillan, uh, who's now the comms director at British Airways, swears by a coffee shop called Tinderbox on Byers Road. Um, and I just wondered if I, I just wondered if you were aware of this because I'm going to give Tinderbox on Byers Road a shout out because he he used to work there and he mentions this as one of his favourite coffee shops. So I, I've become addicted to coffee mm-hmm. during the lockdown. Uh, I liked it anyway, but I've become sort of slightly obsessed with it on a daily basis. So if I ever get up to Glasgow. I'm going to try and go for a coffee in Tinderbox. Yeah, Tinderbox is great. I can advocate for Tinderbox. They also have a lovely cafe on Ingram Street. And I used to go there all the time. So when I worked in the city chambers um, in health policy all those years ago, and also when I worked for the Games, which was in Albion Street, just around the corner, that's my go-to. It was Tinderbox coffee. Absolutely amazing. In terms of home comforts, what what kind of things are you enjoying right now? I know you enjoy your garden, but what what kind of things are you you doing? I, pre- I presume that you work from home a certain amount of the time. Yeah, I mean, I've got limited time at the moment with uh, a fifteen month year old. Um, but I, actually, at the moment, I guess going back to music, um, my I, I'm currently sort of working on my own EP and we're just putting the finishing touches on it so we're mixing it at the moment so we're doing my spare time yes apart from the garden in my spare time I am we're kind of listening to the remixed version of our our current EP and um, yeah we're hoping to kind of complete that probably within the next month Um, so this is great because we've Jane and I I mentioned previously who you know we've, we've been session vocalist as a bit, bit of hinge and bracket of the backing vocal world. We've done so much for other people over the years, but um, this is our own EP now. So um, yeah, that it's it's been great to to have kind of worked on that over the last sort of couple of years, and it's it's really sort of coming to a close now. So we're really happy with it. Um, so yeah, that that that's kind of taking up a bit of time, kind of at the moment, and. Yeah, apart from that, I've just not got a huge amount of time at the moment. What with, you know, back to back to work and looking after Maisie. <laughs> and where, where will people be able to get a copy of your EP? Well, we're hoping once it's all ready to try and get it on the usual, you know, Spotify, you know, sort of other channels. Obviously, we'll need to kind of confirm where it's going to go. I, I just want to ask you as well, you, you also appeared on Women's Hour with Nicola Sturgeon. I just wanted to ask how that came about. I think it was in 2015. You appeared on a panel interview um, hosted by Muriel Gray. Yeah, I did. I, I, I've actually been on it a couple of times. Um, it was once in London and the the episode with Nicola Sturgeon, we were all there on our panel to kind of talk about different things. And I was there talking about sort of women in science and the underrepresentation of women in science. I remember being thrown quite a tricky question on that show around, because I think Nicola Sturgeon had been talking about, I think it was around sort of supporting particularly sort of uh, vulnerable groups and universal credit and all of that sort of a thing. And uh, the host asked me, you know, do you think we should be spending or investing all this money in innovation where we should be investing in, in, in people and, and supporting, you know, the most vulnerable people, including disabled people. To which I responded, from my experience of working with disabled people, which I did, obviously, throughout the Commonwealth Games as sort of accessibility lead, 
actually what is incredibly important to a lot of disabled people is um, access to technology and innovation to enable independent living. So actually sort of innovation is not about, you know, tech that you just play with. Innovation is about solving challenges. And that's a key message, actually. You know, innovating your way out of of problems and challenges is, is, is absolutely essential. So I guess maybe sometimes we need to change the way people think about science and innovation to a certain extent. But from my point of view, you know, science and innovation is about solving problems and enabling people's lives. You were recently appointed to the board of the Glasgow International Jazz Festival. How did that come about? Can you tell us a bit more about that? I'd actually been, you know, occasionally, as you know, um, boards are kind of looking for new members. It was actually a colleague of mine who was already kind of on the board from the Chamber of Commerce who knew about my interest in music and my my, my background. Um, but I, I guess my involvement in, in various kind of other other boards and, and governance, I guess, sort of over the years, and thought maybe my skills might match what they might be kind of looking for. So, yeah, so I put my name forward. I've been involved for a wee while now and obviously I've just come back from mat leave and, and, and the festival's about to kick off again um, on the 18th uh, to the 21st of this month. So it's kind of a digital edition. So it's not, it's obviously scaled back, but... Yeah, I mean, the team have done an amazing job. I mentioned our Innovation Summit previously, you know, to run events is hard enough, but to then sort of translate what you used to do in a physical environment virtually is is is, is not easy. So, yeah, they've done an amazing job and I'm, I'm really looking forward to kind of this year's edition. There's some really, really interesting artists Um and uh, the festival this year has commissioned a piece of music which will be premiered um, during the festival and there'll be various acts um, that will be kind of playing that that piece of music which is a really nice element um, to the the digital edition so no I'm hugely proud to be involved in in the festival you know having been involved as an artist for years it's it it really is an amazing jazz festival if, if 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 people haven't kind of um, don't know about the Glasgow Jazz Festival, but it's 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 eclectic, it's diverse, and it's not just jazz. <laughs> you know, there's there's a there's a lot of different types of you know soul, R and B, world music kind of thrown in there too. Now, one thing we ask all our guests: Can you tell us about a, an unusual fact, something weird and wonderful that people listening are extremely unlikely to know about you? Um, well, I guess an unusual fact is that I supported James Brown. Is that a good one? <laughs> in uh, 2006, when he performed in Glasgow. Well, that was quite a moment. Now that you've mentioned this, you've ins- we, we do have something in common here. I didn't support James Brown. I'm just going to throw that out before I say anything. that's <laughs> too incriminating. But I randomly uh, met James Brown briefly in a, a Glasgow car park. <laughs> In the rain, in the dark, behind Clyde Auditorium, I think is the venue, the one that looks like an armadillo. Myself and my good friend Gavin Calder went to see him perform there. And we we would, we we weren't necessarily hanging around after the show, but we were one of the last people out. We really were just, you know, the last few 
um, walking away from the venue. And it, this is a very true story, but a stretch limo did a sort of a big U shape in the uh, car park. We thought, oh, that's a stretch limo. That's a very sort of <laughs> atypical celebrity vehicle. You know, I just thought actually some young people had hired it or it was a, I don't know. You know, but as it turned out, James Brown was in the stretch limo. And it's very true to say that there's literally only about 15 to 20 people knocking around in this rain-drenched Glasgow car park and a couple of empty tour buses. Anyway, the car swings round. And amazingly, James Brown steps out with this sort of, you know, the suit and the Cuban heel boots and the, the sort of fur across his shoulders. And... Uh, there's a famous scene in one of the Indiana Jones movies where Harrison Ford and the Indiana Jones character has to go back to Berlin to try and rescue his, his diary, his grail diary, but he gets caught up in this Nazi rally and it's a slightly ludicrous scene where he's getting pushed and jostled by the crowd and Hitler's walking through the crowd and to cut a long story short, he just suddenly finds himself face to face with Hitler who signs his notebook. Now, I'm not comparing James Brown to Hitler, but basically what happened was James Brown got out of his car and for some strange reason, he walked towards me and just put his hand out. So I shook his hand and of course I'm feeling a bit sort of dumbfounded, didn't know what to say to him. And this is honest, this is this is God's own truth. But some some wag, presumably a Glaswegian wag, shouts out from behind me, James, how do you feel? And this is this is very true. He said, I feel good, and did a little jig on the spot before getting back into the window. So there you go. That's my uh that's my James Brown story. <laughs> it's all true. It's all true. Whether or not I leave that on the podcast is another matter. Now, listen, it's been great fun talking to you today. And I'm going to finish up by saying, um, what, what? I mean, given the sort of breadth and depth of all these amazing sort of experiences you've had in life and in your career, I mean, what's next for you and, and what do you still want to achieve? Are you asking me that five-year question? <laughs> This is not an interview. Well, it is an interview, but it's not a job interview. <laughs> Do you know what? I, you know, in terms of um, my career at the moment, so my science and innovation career, I'm so lucky to be in Glasgow in, in the sense of we've got a really sort of thriving innovation community. And it's sort of, we all agree, it feels like we're on the cusp of something really quite exciting at the moment. Um, you know, Glasgow's got a really m remarkable history, actually, of, of discovery and invention. And, and I guess we continue to use innovation and invention, to, to, like I said earlier, to sort of tackle the challenges that we face, actually. And, and, and as you know, that, that you know, Glasgow is a place with challenges as well, right? We've got endemic challenges in health and inequality, that we need to fix but at the same time we have kind of world-class universities and talent and innovative businesses and entrepreneurs doing really exciting things so I guess if I can support that and connect people and help I guess the region to develop a kind of outward-looking economy that has agility and that can kind of adapt and respond to what's happening in the world as we tackle the challenges that we're facing from Brexit to the to the pandemic really 
um, as well as kind of local problems kind of on the ground. And, I, and do you know what really excites me? We've talked about music and we've talked about science and actually they're not two separate things. <laughs> and the thing that really kind of excites me about a place like Glasgow that is a kind of world-class hub for culture and the arts and music, but also is this kind of European city of science and innovation is convergence, is what can happen when different and disparate sectors can come together. And actually history and, and, and current research shows us that encouraging collaboration between science, tech, engineering, maths and creative sectors can deliver, I guess, exciting solutions to some of some of our biggest kind of challenges that, that we face. So whereas the arts and humanities can amplify social change and like they can heal and provoke and disrupt the way we think, design, for example, technological design might be one of the most powerful tools we have for, I guess, smoothing that journey from sort of research insights. So the stuff I used to do kind of in the lab and discovery to actually creating better products, creating better places to live, you know, creating sort of healthier and, and greener places, you know, to, to live in sort of in, in the future. So yeah, the, the, fu- the future is, is, is bright and we're just, yeah, I'm excited about um, the opportunities um, within our region and, and wider Scotland. That's a very fitting way to end the interview. So I just wanted to say, uh, Dr. Susie Mitchell, thank you very much for joining us today on Comms from the Shed. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to the latest episode of Comms from the Shed. Hit subscribe if you want to know when new episodes are available or check out our Instagram page for the latest updates.